when I was on this cliff face last night riding bikes at midnight with this really cool group of friends that are really tough and able to do these amazing rides, I almost say it every night ride. I said, 51 years old, if I, if I could have imagined my life, you know, my wildest dream, what would I be doing at 51 years old? No way would have I predicted that I would be doing this. Welcome to Making It in Nashville, a podcast where you get to hear the stories behind some of your favorite artists and businesses in town. Each episode, we interview a different local Ashevillian, we uncover their story, we find out how they're making it in Nashville, and try to provide you with actionable insights and lessons from each conversation that you can then apply to your own life and business. And we are your guests. That was Sarah. <laughs> we are your host. <laughs> we're also your that guests. was Sarah, and I am Tony. And we're a husband and wife team that moved to Asheville in May of 2019. Uh, at the time, we really didn't know how we were going to make it in Asheville, so we decided to start a podcast where we would interview people who, by our definition, are making it in Asheville. And, uh, Almost a year later, we've we've absolutely loved the process, got to meet some incredible people like today's guest, Clint Spiegel. But first, a word from our sponsors. <laughs> yeah, in case you're wondering how we ourselves are making it in Asheville, uh, Tony and I started our own marketing business when we moved here. It's called Making It Creative. We work with passionate business owners here in town and all over the country to help them develop more meaningful storytelling and uh, more targeted marketing strategies to grow and more effectively convert their audience into customers. And it has been an absolute blast. Um, what a crazy one year in Asheville. We are thankful for the, you, listener, for participating in uh, whatever this has become. Um, and we've, I honestly can't get over the amount or the, the quality of people that we've had opportunities to have conversation with, like Clint Spiegel. So this episode is uh, gigantic, I think, for me, for us, uh, in, in so much as we've talked to some really, I think, inspiring entrepreneurs and some really uh, amazing brand builders, some folks who are early in a process, late in the process. Uh, this particular story seems somehow different mm -hmm. from all of the other ones so far in so much as... Uh, like Clint kind of embodies this serial entrepreneur, tinkerer, mad, like Tony Stark, mad scientist, engineer, who's able to build literally anything that he's like dreamt of. And uh, that has been both a gift and a curse over the years. And now he's in this really, really sweet spot. And I think that his ability to tell the story was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And for those of you who don't know, because I think unless you're really in the cycling world, you might not, not have heard biking, of his yeah. business, which is Industry 9. Uh, they build these really cool custom cycling components. Um, they're some of the best in the world. Some of the like best cyclists use their components to build their bikes. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a massive business. They've got over, I think, 90 employees, mm -hmm. he said. So it's, it's one of the largest businesses in Asheville. I yeah, think. yeah. And so, I mean, and that's not a factual statement, but it is... Yeah. pretty accurate um and and part of the story is that it's called industry nine because there were eight industries that failed <laughs> before he built this and so uh also the this industry nine is kind of drafting off of a uh 
pretty like way less sexy uh, industrial machining business yeah. that his dad started uh, 50 years ago. And so um, as part of their innovation strategy has been like Clint in some way or another has been allocating time and attention and resources into startup ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can hear him tell the stories of most of them with like heartbreaking detail about how they failed in this way or failed in that way or too early or uh, whatever the issues were. Um, and then finally hit a sweet spot. And I love how we were able to kind of unearth reasons or or guesses let's say for why industry nine has been successful where the other ones weren't yeah this is i think this is a fantastic episode uh for anyone who's kind of looking to learn more about how to keep your edge how to keep innovating how to stay fresh in an industry that maybe you have a lot of competitors um or things are evolving very very quickly that's kind of his superpower i think um and he he outlines sort of some of the things that he's done in order to maintain that edge in in the industry yeah so uh, i mean we could attempt to try and capture what he what he told us relatively eloquently in our uh, episode together Um, but instead let's just hop in. And one thing I'll say is that we are in for this episode in like a fully (laughs) live working gigantic factory. Um, and there's only like a kind of minor hum in the background, probably indistinguishable, indistinguishable based on your headphones or how you're listening. Um, but I loved it. It felt, uh, I don't know, it, the, the hum was electrifying for me and I'm, I'm excited to share this episode. So without further ado, Episode 46 with Clint Spiegel, uh, founder of Industry 9. Enjoy. Cool. Yeah, so then uh, where did you start? How did you get your start with mountain bikes and uh, which, I guess, came first? So we are in... Uh, a gigantic facility by our accounts. What kind of square footage? And then I'll ask about the bikes. I'm sorry. So like all in, would you say? You know, I would say between all of our buildings, I think it's about 70,000 square feet, something like that. Wow. We had like 700 in uh, maybe in, I don't even know that that's true. We had like a hundred square feet in New New York for a moment, 200 (laughs) maybe. So that's like incalculable is the scale of what's going on here. And I'm wondering some of this, not all of this, is used for uh, bike park manufacturing. What came first, the passion for bikes or the realization that you can make wheels better than anyone? Well, I mean, how I started or how it all started was my father actually started the um, machine shop when I was born. He started with one machine, one employee. Actually, one of his first employees was my mother, and I learned to walk on our first building is across the street, and they cordoned off a little corner of the shop, put me in the walker while they you know, worked, and I learned how to walk you know, running around. But, you know, it wasn't a lot of my life, but about, about about five, my dad started bringing me into work, um, you know, just on Saturday and hanging out with him. And, and um, that's how I got kind of my start with that. But the machine shop was doing contract manufacturing. So you make parts for all kinds of industries um, and, uh, you know, might be automotive, military, communications, you know, just anything you can really think about. Um, but most of my life... Um, probably would accuse myself of being kind of a 
kind of dumb in that I was just so career focused and my family had this amazing work, work, work kind of ethic all the time. So I really didn't have hobbies. Um, and, um, so I was very involved in the business by 16. I knew I was going to do it as a career, but one of the problems with this business, because it's contract work, you are subject to getting an account and then them leaving and, you know, find it a uh, at another factory for 10 cents cheaper or even worse that really happened big time in the nineties, send it to China and it continues. And so most contract manufacturers, their dream is to start their own product line so they can control their own manufacturing. Perfect. Um, yeah. At any rate. So, um, as a result, when I got out of college, or actually during college, we started our first business and our new business that was um, our own product line. And then as soon as I got out of college, and this is what exposed me to the bike world at, at first, is we got the account to make parts for RockShocks. And RockShocks is one of the major uh, suspension companies for mountain bikes. And... Um, I wasn't a cyclist at the time, but it was such a major piece of business for us that uh, I would go out and ride with uh, the guys at Rock Shocks, and I did it mainly for business relationships. It, again, I was kind of against having a har- hobby, just focus on work. And um, we did that for two or three years, and uh, Rock Shocks moved out to California. Um, the company that remained was called uh, uh, renamed themselves to Ken Creek, which you guys have probably heard of mm-hmm. here in town. And they actually came to me to develop a hub. And I spent a couple of years working with them to develop a hub, ultimately failed, spent two years, about a quarter million dollars, and just had to basically throw it away. And they killed the project. And I was pretty much out of the bike world for about 10 years. Fast forward, this was in my early 20s. Now fast forward to about my mid-30s. And I'm making the realization that my kind of life work balance is way out of whack. I'm getting out of shape. Um, you know, no, I need, I, I know I need to do something. And uh, so I start cycling hard. And as I start cycling, I start thinking of all the ideas that I'd worked with 10 years earlier and um, trying to make it work. And then over a couple of years, just because you own a machine shop, you prototype any of your ideas and then develop some good things. And that's what ultimately launched industry nine. So I definitely came at it, um, industrially, you know, my background was industrial and then, you know, I found a passion and then I was able to apply my manufacturing knowledge to my, my, you know, passion for recreation. I want to go back for a moment because you said you, you know, you've been here your whole life basically. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a moment when you, did not want to work for this company or be in this industry at all? Well, as a kid, I had not really planned necessarily to make it my career. Actually, at about 16, my, uh, my plan was to be a geneticist. Um, I'm a weird kid. At five years old, I knew exactly what I wanted to be, and it was a pirate. And because <laughs> I build things, I actually went and tried to build a pirate ship on this little pond. My family had a little farm going as well as the machine shop they raised horses and um so i did that and then a year later like a lot of kids 
I wanted to be an archaeologist. And so, you know, dug bones anywhere I could and, uh, you know, just ridiculous kid stuff. But I kind of always had this real passion for career. And, um, but at 16, actually, my, my father's business was really growing at this point. And it was getting more exciting. You know, he started out with machinery that were um, not as advanced. And then in the mid-'80s, um, the computer-controlled machines, CNC machines, really started coming alive. He was an early adopter. And so the business really grew. It started looking a lot more exciting. And, uh, you know, because I was always kind of an inventive type, um, you know, he was like, this is, you know, would be a good opportunity for you to use as your career. Yeah. You should really consider it. And so I, you know, for that year, I said, all right, I'm going to throw myself full force into, like, thinking about this for a career. And I was ridiculous. You know, my summer of my 16-year-old, or my 16-year-old life, I probably worked 90 hours a week in the summer. And just insane and stupid. Um, but I have a lot of energy, so it wasn't that hard and, um, and really fell in love with it. And, and, uh, but the plan was always to take that business and then develop new product lines and, um, industry nine is called industry nine because it was actually the ninth company that I either partnered in or, um, started or partnered in. And most of them were failures. You know, there was a few that were, you know, maybe two or three that were pretty successful, but most of them were failures until Industry 9. And it was, you know, definitely the best one that we started. And then um, at one point, I was probably running five companies at a time. And when Industry 9 really showed that it was going to, had a good potential for growth, I shut the other ones down and then focused on the machine shop and Industry 9. So that's how that part happened. Wow. What were some of the other, the other companies that you started, if you want to share? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm glad to share. My, I might go into a moment of PTSD or uh, <laughs> some traumatic experiences in my life. Um, uh, one of the first ones, my college degree was computer science. Um, and I worked with one of my buddies to develop software that did remote monitor, monitoring of how your factory was running. So this was, you know, before this was very common uh, place as it is today, but uh, we, we built this system that you can connect your machine tools and then people from home, like the plant manager, could watch how the factory was running, reassign people to increase efficiencies and stuff like that. Um, spent a couple of years of my life developing that and sold precisely zero oh, no. of those. Um, so that was a good crushing defeat. And uh, then went into uh, wire EDM tooling. That was that machine that cuts electricity that I showed you earlier. And um, got pretty much crushed out of the marketplace by a heavy-duty competitor on that one. Um, went into high-end tactical knives. That was at least a success. And we made... Um, Uh, A lot of knives that uh, police departments and um, military people, police officers really, really loved. And and that was um, that was the first time that I'd really made a product that um, really uh, played to somebody's passion, you know, really important how it looked, how it functioned. And it was, you know, it was their hobby. Um, I mean, the police officers and stuff and the military people used it as a tool. But a lot of the people you sold it to might be hunters or just, you know, people who love knives. And that was, that was fun. And that was, that was good. And it was a big uh, help to starting Industry 9. Um, 
but we were partners in that business and our, and though I hate to sell businesses, um, our partners kind of forced the sale. So we were out of that. Um, another one was high end packaging machinery. We made machinery that, um, uh, makes the stand up pouches that you might see like Capri Sun or whatever, you huh. know, the, those things. So it was the machines that made those pouches and it was really cool things. You know, the machines were, I think we sold them for about a million and a half dollars. It was really tightly integrated electronics and servo motors and really advanced math. I mean, we made incredible machines. The only problem is, is it cost us about a million three quarters to make a machine that we sold for a million and a half. So not very lucrative there and soon went out of business. Um, we've never declared bankruptcy, but just became clear that they weren't going to make it and, and decided to have to shut down. But we were partners in that business too. So that was kind of forced. Um, industrial robotics. I designed a line of uh, robots for loading machine tools and then went around the country doing um, factory automation. And though that was really intellectually stimulating, it was the absolute worst business I have ever been in just because you were just dealing with very unpleasant human beings. Oh. The pre the prospect of, of this automation was, you know, they wanted to fire 20 of their people and automate their factory. And the, you know, there was always threats of lawsuits and it was just nasty people. So mm. I really, really hated that aspect of the business intellectually. It was really, really fun. Um, I don't so, know how many I've so counted that, I mean, here so far, but that gives you a <laughs> that's, decent that's, little yeah. overview. So uh, as, not to overly simplify, but if you could attempt to identify the differences between the ones that failed and got shut down by partners, let's say, or that you shut down, and Industry 9, right? Like, what about it made it Goldilocks, where it was just right, you have passionate customers who are you know willing to spend on a premium product you have the tools in the backyard like what about it do you think made it work or is making it work current tense yeah um well we could probably write a book about that but uh you know some overviews of it like the robotics business you know we can talk about some aspects of that um Let's call that like starting a car company. You know, we've we've seen Elon Musk be able to pull off Tesla, but he started with many, many millions of dollars. And even that was stacked against him mm -hmm. because of the entrenched competition and just how big a business that was. And the robotics, though, it's not nearly as big as that. These people that are buying these robotic systems are, are investing many hundreds of thousands of dollars into their system. So being a startup creates issues with that and because it is strictly a monetary uh decision meaning you'll invest a certain amount in your factory and then you look at your return and then also the longevity of the equipment the ability to services and stuff like that people will um it's a tough decision and they'll uh, often pragmatically make the decision that no we're going to go with a bigger company hmm. um the bicycle world when we started industry nine one of the early things we dealt with as we build up our market share is there was definitely early adopters and the bicycle world is wonderful it's kind of like a lot of renegade rebel type people in the bicycle world and when they see a small upstart they're very willing to give it a try but a lot of people 
you know, like the f- first wheels we sold were a thousand dollars for a set of wheels. And, you know, this was like 14 years ago, I guess. And, um, you know, it's a lot of money and, you know, something, a bearing might go out or a spoke might need to be repaired. And if they think your company won't last more than a couple of years, which the bicycle world is full of that, they don't want to invest the money. And so it took us a couple of years of being in business before more and more people started buying it. But it was really nice to have those early adopters and people that were willing to risk that. And it was just the culture of the bicycle world. But in the industrial world, you don't have that culture. Um, so that was one of the big things that was associated with it. Um, you know, some of the other businesses, I, I don't know, you're young, you, you have a lot of energy, you have a lot of creativity, but, you know, maybe you don't do the marketing quite right or you, um, you know, make certain mistakes that uh, – you, you later see as mistakes. You maybe don't see them, see them at the first. But I think more than anything, what, what the real key of the ingredient with Industry 9 was the passion that went into it. Um, though I loved building my machines, I loved building the robots, there was still something that wasn't quite as like, you know, reach down into your soul hmm. as, as cycling is and uh, being able to make something that you're so passionate about just kind of, uh, I mean, honestly, my world is 100% surrounded by bicycles now. My friends are cyclists. My hobby outside of work is cycling. You know, I come into work and I'm making bike parts. And so it just gives you this incredible mixture of passion and creativity um, that, you know, creates a really, really great product. And, you know, you're competing with 7 billion, 8 billion almost people on this planet. So if you're going to sell a product or if you're going to develop a brand, you've got to do it really, really well or you're going to fail. Mm. And so I think, I think just adding the passion and, and the abilities. But, you know, obviously my whole background um, as a kid led up to being really good at being able to make something like this. So. And for context, how long has I-9 been in business? So Industry 9 has been in business for about 14 years. We probably mm-hmm. started developing our first prototypes about 16 years ago. But the machine shop, Turnamics, has been in existence for 50. Actually, this year was our 50th anniversary. Wow. wow. So. And so you were running all those other businesses while this was going, and I'm, I'm saying yeah. this, and pointing behind father, me by that. But And my father continues to be involved, so he's always taken – primary um responsibility for the machine shop and i've taken the primary responsibility for starting the new businesses or the designs and creation stuff like that so awesome i i I got to meet him while you both were on your factory tour oh nice so he, he popped in uh he seems like salt of the earth like hard worker exactly what you kind of said your your childhood was like I'm wondering, uh, he still works in the business today? And, and, yeah, he's, and he's 75 years old and pretty much... He doesn't look 75. Yeah, he's, um, yeah, he's got a lot of energy um, is in himself. Um, so I don't know if I would consider my father salt of the earth. No? But he <laughs> is brilliant, energetic, driven, and... Um, you know, he still works full time for a regular person, you know, 40 hours a week or something like that. Yeah. But, 
you know, most of his life, you know, when he was young, when I was a kid, he would come, you know, he'd probably work 60, 70 hours a week here. And then, like I said, a little side business that my mom had was raising horses. Wow. Then he'd come home and get on a tractor and plow a field until midnight or something like that. So, you know, he just worked just goes 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 goes. we can see where your work ethic comes from then (laughs) i mean part of it is the work ethic part of it is you know you get lucky yeah some people are born tall some people are born uh smart not so smart full of energy not so much energy uh we have a good hard line of intense energy and you know yeah, I like Keep to. Going. I like to say that what I lack in in skill, I try to make up for with enthusiasm. And so, I'm wondering, as you were kind of talking through this, there's like this, um, you know, luck and skill. It's hard to know. It's with hindsight. Sometimes maybe it's easier. I'm wondering, outside of just like doggedness and determination and putting in more hours, are there any things that stand out as like important? leadership lessons, business owning lessons, concepts outside of outwork everybody? Well, when you outwork everybody, you learn, you make all kinds of mistakes and you learn lessons as a result of it. It's Mm -hmm. just like number of hours living. You know, if you could magically live to 200, you're going to know a lot more. Um, But also some of it was just hard lessons to work less hard, you know, uh, having a machine shop when you have a lot of energy and a creative mind is dangerous. You know, you just are constantly, you have a new idea and a new idea and you work on too many things and you don't have focus some of the times. Um, actually, uh, the amount of time I worked when I started industry nine was probably 40% less than I worked when I was starting all the other companies in my twenties and early thirties. And it worked a lot better. Um, luck does have something to do with it. Mm. You fail, you know, and you think of a new idea, you refine, you refine how you're doing it and you have a, a little bit better chance of pulling something off of at each time. But you know, it's, it's unclear. You know, it's interesting too. You know, I've worked working in a machine shop all my life. I've seen inventors come by to have parts made and it's interesting, you know, inventors, it's their baby, their ideas, their, their baby. And, uh, have you ever noticed, y'all don't have kids, right? Have you ever noticed how every parent, their little baby is the most beautiful genius that has ever existed? Well, unfortunately, every baby isn't a genius and beautiful and, but the parent thinks that. And so as an inventor, you think that as well. And you start noticing that there are people that are so excited about their ideas and you see their ideas and you're like, that is a horrible idea. So part of it is, is uh, I've always tried to relentlessly focus my thought process to, you know, reality-based, you know, mm. um, get out of your own head and see what the world is valuing and, and your product and how it is accepted. And all of it is just, you know, every single day, every single hour, you refine those those decisions and you know you like to think you finally figure it out but part of it is that and part of it you get little periods of time in your life where you get lucky and everything works yeah i'm definitely in that period of my life right now i don't necessarily expect it to last i hope it does yeah but we will soon see 
Wow. So we have a metaphor that has come up for us where same idea of the, the baby that everyone thinks is beautiful. Um, we have a fear that this thing, which is our baby, is actually the ugly baby. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just, I just I find that a lot of early on uh, entrepreneurs or people who are, you know, freelancing or trying to start some sort of service business, their own vision of the baby that they're building sees only the flaws, sees only, like, when I hear myself speak, I only hear my filler words, I only hear the amount of times that I stutter, um, and I don't hear the good that comes out of it, and so it's funny that it's a similar, is that you? Okay. Um, it's a similar metaphor, except uh, when you're, when you think that you have this, like, revolutionary idea, and you're trying to uh, create it and make it a reality there's a harsh difference between the beauty of the baby in your head and like will a customer buy it and so it seems that where if if i'm going to try and put words to it the the magic that's happened in industry nine is a that it's a passion that you have and have had um it gave you excitement and that is its own special sauce but then there's also you know, customers who are willing to take chance because it's an industry that uh, has consumers and maybe not businesses that are as pragmatic, right? One of the reasons why I have friends that that say that they left real estate, uh, residential real estate, is because it's too emotional and you want to sell commercial because it's pragmatic and businesses make business decisions. So selling to a customer might be a good step if you if it's inherently a little bit riskier It's a startup. I'm wondering, that's a windy way of saying, I'm wondering when you were making those initial sales, those initial products, right? It's one thing to scratch your own itch. It's one thing to have the tools to be able to develop the, um, you know, invention that you have, let's say. It's another thing to get in front of a customer and have them buy it. Were your first customers bike shop, bike manufacturers, like wholesale accounts? Or were you selling direct to consumer in those early days? Well, we definitely started as direct-to-consumer. Uh, it's actually been recently that we've moved more into the uh, OEM business, selling directly to the bike brands or even the larger distributors. Um, but, um, you know, going back to the original point of refining that, it is – Having an idea and a good idea is part of it. Implementing that idea is part of it. And every single move that you make afterwards, um, your relationships you build, um, the employees you can attract. Uh, that was a big difference um, even with the people that were working with me. Um, you know, my other businesses, uh, I knew like robotics. You know, I started the robotics business because I needed robots for my machines. And at that time, robots were really expensive, you know, about a hundred thousand dollars for a basic robot. Now that price has come down to maybe 30, but, um, it became price prohibitive to automate. So making it myself worked and I really understood what I needed and how to make it work. Some people start businesses that, you know, they see an idea, but they really don't know that world. And so now anytime I see that, I'm like, Go with something that you have a, 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 a background that you can give a, an edge 
and you, your ability set um, allows you to have that edge. Um, but, like I remember when I was doing robotics, it was really, really hard for me to find people that also knew things about robotics in Asheville, North Carolina, particularly. Mm-hmm. It would have been a lot easier if I probably had started this business in, I don't know, Silicon Valley or something like that. I would have also been competing with a lot higher wages with the other tech companies, so that would have been a problem. But Industry 9, man, what a perfect business for Asheville, North Carolina. Tons of people from all over the country love Asheville and want to ride bikes in Asheville, but there's not a lot of really great jobs. So you start a bicycle manufacturing company in an area that has great riding. I was able to bring in people from all over the country that were really talented people that were just looking for an excuse to move to Asheville. And so then they brought that passion to help it work too. So, you know, that's huge. Um, Every step of the way, um, as long as you have that passion, then you have the energy and the emotional desire to keep pushing through all the hard times. Like your your example with uh, commercial versus residential real estate okay if you are doing residential real estate and it's so emotional because you're tied into these families and you know i've got a couple of real realtor buddies myself and so you make an offer and the other real estate agent out competes you or the other buyer out competes you and the uh the buyers you're working with are really upset with you like why didn't you, you know, get in that one more offer? And, you know, that really, really bothers them. And it's just like, I can't stand that. It just hurts their heart. Well, you're not going to make it. (sighs) If it hurts your heart, you're not going to make it. Conversely, if that just hurts your heart a little bit, but that buyer that's like, oh, I found my dream house, and that just lights you up. I have a buddy um, that's exactly like that, and it just means so much to him to help these people find their dream Every disappointment he has is overwhelmed by that positive feeling that he gets from that. So he's going to do really well. He does do really well. But if I had known him, I don't know, 20 years ago when he started, I'd have been like, oh, yeah, you're going to totally make it. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so, you know, those are, those are some of the bits of magic, I guess. I love that. I think, you know, with you guys and the podcast, obviously podcasts are a big thing these days. And... Um, and I'm sure there's thousands of people trying to, you know, start a podcast that nobody really wants to tune in. But, uh, you know, you guys bring that passion and, and have some interesting interviews. And uh, I hope to be one of them. And, uh, you know, it makes it much more likely to pull it off, of course. And we're so. trying to, I think what you're speaking to, and I know Sarah has a question, is like these kind of, I always refer to like Venn diagrams. It's just like when you can find those kind of overlaps that uh, that's where the magic happens. It's where the concentric circles kind of connect. And so to your point, we're hoping that uh, there are a lot of business podcasts. There are a lot of podcasts with founders. We're hoping that the circle of founders, Asheville, and uh, hopefully hosts that don't suck, knock on wood, uh, is like a decent enough... uh, (laughs) Soup that people enjoy to eat. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> God damn, I lost my... I got, pizza, that was, pizza, pizza, pizza. We're making uh, pizza and the dough <laughs> and the red sauce. Yeah. <laughs> Alas, but I hope I, I here's to that being true. It does mm-hmm. seem like you've hit a perfect kind of Venn diagram right now. 
Sarah, what, what were you about to ask? You had well, a question. I, I want, I'm curious to go back to the first sale that you made with Industry 9. And how did you go about thinking finding those people that would yeah. buy your products magazine was where the internet 14 years ago was a different place uh yeah well time though for us uh we how we started um during the prototype and started working with some shops and then every shop has a handful of really really good riders and so we'd make prototypes and these guys were excited to ride, you know, mainly because it was made by the local company. And so they started riding it. And then, you know, we refined the product as they were riding it. And then it's out on the trail. And we had a huge advantage. Uh, our, I like to think the main reason I was successful was because I made a wheel that functioned better than every other wheel. And I believe that to the root of my heart. But I also made them with all these pretty colors and really fancy, shiny colors as well. And so when those first bikes were riding around, like at Bent Creek, other people saw them. And, you know, those colors caught their eye. And so then they started talking to the rider that was there, actually, an uh, engineering buddy of mine. I remember he was, uh, I became friends with him because he saw one of those wheels. And then he was like, who's doing this? And then he was interested and uh, even helped me do some of the original um, engineering calculations. And um, so that was real organic because it was kind of an exciting looking product. But then when people would dig in deeper, they were like, oh, wow, it's really, um, you know, really has a functional advantage. So then these bike shop people that uh, two different guys that either worked in a bike shop or owned a bike shop were so excited about it that they and then they came to work for me in the very early years to help it work. And so then they put um, the first set of wheels in, I think it was actually Liberty Bike Shops here in town and wow. because they had that contact. And so that got us going a little bit in the local market. And then we did a uh, trade show. It's called Interbike. It was, it was, it's not even in existence now, but, um, you know, it's the biggest bike show in, um, North America anyway. And, um, we had on display these really beautiful multicolored wheels and people were taking pictures of them like crazy and posting them on the forums and the bulletin boards or, you know, whatever the main source was, you know, (laughs) one Facebook or Instagram, but you can bet those pictures were going all over the Mm -hmm. place. And so that, you know, um, gave us a good ability to grow right away. Not fast, not super fast, but I mean, it was definitely went from zero to 60. It felt way different than any of my other businesses. You know, there was a real passion. I always like to tell the story. I was, um, at the early days, the robotics business was, getting wind under and it was doing fairly well and the bike and the bicycle wheel business industry nine was doing really well and i would you know have a phone call from an industry nine customer that was just gushing how much they love the wheels and how it's how it improved their riding and stuff like that and then i'd hang up the phone and get a call from a robotics customer and they would threaten to sue me for $5,000 per day if I didn't get the robot system running so they could fire 20 people. 
And uh, when I finally made the life realization that I needed to focus and shut a company down so I could focus, it was real easy to make the choice of Industry 9. Um, but, you know, but I also saw that growth coming in, and, and the Internet was huge for that because, you know, it spread around. But now still, people didn't know I would stay in, in business. I had a fight against people saying, oh, you're going to spend $1,000 for a set of wheels because it's pink. And it's like, no, that's not the case. But that was even nice because the people that had bought the initial wheels came to our defense. Mm -hmm. We didn't even have to make the argument. Somebody would make a negative comment like that. And then, you know, I'd have 10 people defending me and saying, no, this is really a better functioning wheel. It's not just about the color. And, um, just for as close as you can without seeing it, right. So we're a podcast, not yet video podcast. Um, but one of the ways that I remember you explaining part of what makes your wheel different it has to do with uh, is it take up or is that the right term it's how quickly force to the pedal affects the tires rotation yeah i mean we would call it engagement, engagement. speed um but yeah uh when we were starting most of the hubs bicycle hubs had uh what we call 20 degree engagement time so you know when you quit pedaling and it's coasting it's called freewheel and um, you have your maximum strength when your feet are applying force to the pedal at, if you looked at a clock, at 3 o'clock and 9 o'clock. When you're at 6 and 12, it, you're at your weak point. So um, if you lose 20 degrees, you, you're like you're going to an obstacle and you're timing, like pulsing a pedal stroke over like a log or a rock or something like that. If you, you set your feet at that power point and then you surge into it, and if you lose 20 degrees and it's random, it could be a loss of one degree, it could be a loss of 20 degrees, it just, your timing isn't, isn't, isn't right and you lose some of your strength. Huh. And so by having a very, very fast engagement time, ours, our current hubs are a half a degree. Now it just feels like when anytime you want to time and energy pulse force pulse to your pedals you're you know exactly when it's going to happen and so you're able to ride technical features a lot better wow okay so i i think i'm tracking with you so if i were to try and make sense of it on a clock you're talking about seconds versus like 12 minutes of of clock being eaten up on a pedal yeah well the best way to look at it is um think about your feet horizontally mm -hmm. and that's what i'm saying at yeah. three and nine versus yeah. vertically at um 12 and six and you're the pe the second the pedal moves at all you're increasing the force on the on the tires you're going faster yeah and i guess the the way to look at it would be i'm trying to give a good ex think of another example for someone that maybe not is a cyclist that well, that would make sense but um I don't know, like if you were using your arms to lift something and you had it close to your body, yeah. it's a lot easier to lift than if you tried to lift it, you know, when it's way out. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing with your pedaling. When your feet are horizontal, you're pressing down with your, mus your, mu your muscles and your weight allow that gravity to push the pedal down. But when it's in its vertical position, you're, you're just kind of scraping with these side muscles. And so if you looked at a force curve... Um, 
of your pedal um, and you saw how much force was being applied to a pedal uh, in a circular pedal stroke, you would notice that when your leading pedal and your rear pedal were at at three and nine, you have more force being applied to the pedal than when your pedal is at six and 12. That makes sense. Yeah. So and tw- and twenty percent to a half a, yeah. or twenty degrees to a half a degree. Yeah. So you wouldn't c- consider it twenty percent. So it's twenty degrees out of three hundred and sixty degrees. Okay. So yeah. a third of that, basically. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know. Where did you get the ideas for the colors? Like, how did that come about? Well, uh, actually, um, this this guy John Kiffmeyer that helped me. Um, do the initial prototypes. He was a machinist here when we started. Um, and when we launched the, uh, business, he, um, well, it started out when we made these aluminum spokes, you're able to anodize them the different colors. So because they were able to be done in different colors, he suggested, let's offer them in all these different colors. Now being a manufacturer and running many businesses myself, that is a horrible decision from inventory management. Um, if you, you know, you looked at all those shelves, a lot of shelves up there, there is, I mean, hundreds of thousands of dollars of inventory of different colored hub shells. And if you just offered black, for instance, you wouldn't have nearly as much money tied up. So that makes the business very difficult to run. And then when you're uh, financially to run, but then also from a system standpoint, it makes it very, very difficult because of the customizations and you have to have special computer uh, software. And, and I wrote my initial stuff to be able to do that. And if I hadn't been in computer science and I had not had the ability when I was bootstrapping and I didn't have the money to buy these $50,000, $100,000 a year software systems, um, that wouldn't have worked either. But um, he saw the marketing benefit of that mm-hmm. and how that got everybody excited. So in all honesty, I probably wouldn't have chosen to do so many colors initially. Actually, he brought in the idea to fade the spokes. So not only did we have 10 different colors of spokes, but you could combine like a red to blue fade, which was insanely difficult to do and insanely expensive to do. It was kind of neat when you were at low volume, but then it became really, really hard to manage. So we went to 10 colors, which nobody else is doing that. I mean, honestly, I don't know of anybody that offers the ability to customize our product like we do in all kinds of industries. And that's difficult stuff to do. But you know, he he had the vision that that would, uh, you know, give us uh, note, um, you know. So the extra cost that went into making that work, you could kind of write off as a marketing expense. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, you know, that helped us a lot. So, but that was a tough decision to make because it really did have some very difficult reverberations. So. Honestly, can't imagine in, in the... the classic business metaphor i'm thinking of is like the apple iphone headphones at the very beginning and how that was such a pattern break in headphones that people wanted that i could imagine being out on uh you know mountains doing uh riding bikes and just noticing that hey those wheels aren't black and wheels are black so what is going on here having an effect similar to uh teenage kids 10 years ago really wanting white headphones 
and getting the coolest, newest phone. Um, you've, you've mentioned now a, a number of times the skill set of computer programming and uh, the complexity of running a manufacturing facility. Uh, there's a couple buzzwords that I know, and I know less, I can't go deep on these, but like lean manufacturing or um, processes like that. Have you done any like continuing education to think about how to run uh, factories and, and uh, systems in general that have informed you that we could link people to if they're thinking about production? Well, sure. And me, various people that, that are employed here, you know, definitely do continuing education. Um, you know, obviously just working with major manufacturers around the world, they require um, certain certifications. And so, yeah, you're constantly um, uh, thinking about new ways of doing things, stuff like that. I, you know, the best way I would put it, though, is... Uh, it's kind of common sense to a certain degree. Um, if that's the way your mind works and that's what you're immersed in, uh, as technology increases, you can do more things. Uh, I actually met with this manufacturer from the Knoxville area, um, yesterday, and he was talking about his manufacturing facility and, just in time is one of the buzzwords and the, and the kind of the idea about it is, is maybe you can get an order, um, for a, a, an item and you could just make one of them and you're not inventorying it or you're not, you know, uh, uh, taking a long time to make it, you know, you have these systems set up and, um, you know, he has these machining, machining cells that he's invested like 3 million in per set per cell to be able to just make one part at a time for what he's doing. That makes a tremendous amount of sense for the bicycle hubs. We're making, we make a lot of different kinds of hubs, but still it makes much more sense for us to do production runs. But, um, that depends on how fast the machines can be set up with, with the computerized machinery and standardized tooling, you can make much shorter runs and then you, you put less parts in inventory waiting to sell through. And that makes a big difference in terms of if you have too many parts in inventory, it, it reduces your, your ability and, and or desire to create new product because you have to use up your inventory. Mm -hmm. But if you're making it, you know, one at a time and, and you're able to do that inexpensively, that's great. 10 years ago, a part that you could maybe make, well, it's not that the technology has gotten that much better in the past 10 years, but if you've developed systems over that 10 year period that allows you to make a part in from zero to nothing in just a couple of minutes, and it used to take you hours to get those machines set up, then, you know, it's obviously better mm -hmm. to do it faster. And, you know, so that's continuous improvement and improving your processes and the way you do things. So, um, but you know, everybody names that, that kind of thinking It categorizes that kind of thinking. I would prefer to just say, I walk in in the morning and look around and try to have an open mind and make things better in any way possible. And part of it also is the, is the human mm -hmm. toll. Uh, there's certain decisions that you refrain from making that might make, uh, uh, save money or make something more efficiently, but it 
drives down the enthusiasm of your people and then you lose something there. So, you know, it's, it's a whole system and multidimensional. So you, know, you could just stay sharp and figure out what you need to do. I'm curious to know what your day-to-day like life is like, like you come in here and, and what you're, let's start from what do you do when you wake up to the end of the day? Well, nine times out of 10, I wake up and, um, some issue of the, of the, the manufacturing or this business or sales or whatever, um, you know, might enter your mind and, and you solve that problem. I have at this point in my life, you, if you went back 10 years ago, I'd say I did a multitude of things, you know, whether it was, um, going to a show or just making sure a machine ran or setting up a machine. But as I've developed a better and better and more capable workforce, I've been able to focus my time. And so the past couple of years has been predominantly spent on design and, and, um, new ideas, um, for product, but also designs and new ideas for improving the manufacturing process. So that's predominantly, you know, the time I spent, but you know, different times you have different emergencies, issues, and, you know, employees finding new employees, stuff like that, that, you know, at times I'll need to spend my time doing and I might come down here and troubleshoot a, a broken machine or a process that isn't working quite right and, and, you know, figure out how to dial it in and, my life's fairly varied, you know, dealing mm-hmm. with uh, customer relations, developing friendships. And then, you know, also, honestly, the, the I'm really, really lucky because riding my bike and riding it a lot also helps the business. You know, if you're a very strong rider, it gives you credibility mm-hmm. that what you make um, is good. So, yeah. And you've told us, you know, I have a lot of energy and, um, you know, always have been, uh, just a a hard worker. I'm wondering, is there something that, I don't know, your diet, your exercise routine that you think has contributed to your energy level or is it just, that's the way I'm wired? (laughs) I mean, it's probably, uh, mostly the way I'm wired. Um, but you know, it's training too. Um, I like to say, you know, I, I was telling you about my night ride last night and, getting to bed at about three thirty, riding about one thirty. Um, you know, a lot of people would not want to do that just because it's like, uh, that's insane. Um, before I did that, I spent till 2 AM here building robots. So now you speak of diet. Um, I, I have this, this picture, I'm 51 years old today. Um, I have this picture when I was 34 that I looked like I was about to die. The reason uh, businesses were failing, uh, difficult marriage, um, young kids, you know, sleeplessness. Um, But I was also working till 2 a.m., ordering pizza uh, to keep working and, you know, getting the machinery done or the robotics done or whatever. And so uh, I was not exercising. I was not on a bike. I wasn't, uh, I was kayaking a little bit, but. uh, I would say that was a horrible lifestyle, but, you know, I still had tons of energy. And now I've just taken that energy and have I exercise a, an intense amount, um, have a great diet most of the time. But I also have way too much fun. So, uh, you know, I won't go too far in how great my <laughs> diet is. And um, 
Um, but mainly, you know, I've just, I've always just wanted to go hard. I wake yeah. up in the morning and I just go hard and that creates energy to a certain degree. Yeah. You're, you're trained. Yeah. There's, you know? there's momentum in just moving fast, yeah. right? It just keeps things moving. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Cool. I, I, w- I had a question and I've since lost it, but I, I believe that the way that I was going to ask, ah, was, was in effect, you're like, you know, I wake up and there's some sort of business emergency and I'm just wondering conceptually, and you don't have to go into detail if you don't want to, but like what types of things, if anything, are keeping you up at night about the business? Um, is it, you know, a competitor might try and get, you know, come up with your idea, Willy Wonka style, um, or is it, um, let's say payroll, uh, which wh- are there, problems that uh at this stage in your life are different than the problems when you were just getting started my guess is yes and what do they look like today you know 14 years into the business um because it's not fine customers like we walk around town we said we were going to i9 and people everyone seems to know that they make the best like they they're the best so it's a different problem today i imagine uh what might that problem be Okay, so a I'll I'll put out. I've never been too much of a worrier. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had lots of difficult times and a lot of problems to solve. I've always considered worry doesn't get you anywhere, but certainly complacency is will kill you. Mm-hmm. And just to what you spoke of, having built finally built a business that um, people really think highly of and that a lot of people do think we make the best stuff out there is really, really great. And I think personally what I guard against the most is keeping that edge. Okay, so when you look at it from a business standpoint, everybody thinks of it complexly. But the truth of the matter is let's take fitness you realize that um, if tomorrow you quit hitting the gym and uh, doing nothing except sitting at your desk all day long, we all know you are going to gain weight and you're going to get out of shape. You're not going to look as good. I mean, a myriad of things happen, right? Obviously. Um, I see it particularly with people that finally become successful uh, they're in their 50s. They have, um, you know, they've gotten this respect. And then it's really easy to just enjoy that. You know, um, I can go to a bike event in, I don't know, Moab, U- Utah or something like that. And I'm sure to have somebody that knows Industry 9, a handful of friends that are there, they're excited about riding with me. You know, so like I can just go out to Moab and kind of be a big deal and ride bikes and have a blast. And um, what that means is you quit innovating, you quit trying to improve. And sooner or later, somebody is going to get you. Somebody's going to create a better product or you're going to allow your facility, your manufacturing, your people um, they're going to lose their edge. You know, they see, they see the owner not working as hard. You know, of course they don't put as much energy into it. Um, and you know, I don't know how many people appreciate that this, but if you, 
if you look at all those machines, you know, we've got more than a 100 CNC machines. We have people building wheels. We have people assembling hubs. We have parts that are going you know, to heat treating, you know, like all these things are processes that have to stay in control to make sure good product gets out the door. I would say that I have somewhere around a half a million variables that could go wrong every single day. And only one of them has to go wrong. And you put bad product out in the field and that might fail. And then your reputation is diminished and your customers are unhappy and then you don't have a business anymore. So like, you have to be diligent, but just like going out on a run or a bicycle ride to keep yourself in physical shape. It's not like you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to make sure to get on a bike. I'm so worried, you know, I'll get out of shape. No, it's just what you do, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the way I do, you know, handle the business. And so it is always innovate and always try to improve your processes and always try to conceptualize the things that could go wrong. So you build a system that makes it increasingly less likely that anything could go wrong. It's not a worry. It's, it's no different than exercising. Yeah. So it's a great answer. I love that. And cause also in many ways, I think people think, Oh, when I get to this point, I'll finally be happy in my life or I'll finally have done the thing that I wanted to do. And it's like, well, no, like it's actually loving the process of what it is that you're doing along the way. And so by constantly innovating, you're, you're keeping your, I imagine, keeping your brain kind of mm-hmm. stimulated and, and interested in what it is. Um, I'm curious to know, looking back at the big picture of the business what milestones or key turning points were there that you can kind of identify from a, a a big picture scale? Okay. So the biggest turning point, the first giant turning point in my life was, um, I think I was about 28 years old and it's kind of a strange thing to be talking about from a business perspective, but, uh, workaholic, driven though enjoying it like don't get me wrong I was behind cold concrete walls for way too many hours my personal life suffered as a result of it. relationships suffered as a result of it but I was still enjoying what I was doing and and loving it um but I was having business failures I was having um uh, a large large degree of difficulty and um I was also uh, becoming less physically healthy. So um, I literally, uh, well, let me make a little side note. When I was on this cliff face last night riding bikes at midnight with this really cool group of friends that are really tough and able to do these amazing rides, I almost say it every night ride. I said, 51 years old, if I, if I could have imagined my life you know, my wildest dream, what would I be doing at 51 years old? No way would have I predicted that I would be doing this. You know, I, no way I thought that I would be this, you know, physically strong and, and hanging out with people doing, you know, this kind of stuff. And, um, and the, and what got me there, and I can't even believe this was me, but if I go back at 28 years old, I'm noticing I'm going out of shape. I'm living in this neighborhood. So what does everybody do when they're like, oh, I need to get in shape. Let's start jogging around the neighborhood. So I start jogging and 
I mean, running like a half a mile would just killed me. My shins hurt. I was worn out. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did a 30 mile trail race, you know, like it's easy now. I mean, it's not easy, but you know, like it's easy to do and I couldn't run a block. And so I, I live next to this little lake and I saw these older people canoeing, just leisurely canoeing around the lake. And I was like, maybe that's what I could do to get a little bit more shape. So I bought a, a little lake kayak. And I remember when I bought it, I told everybody, I was like, it's not like I'm going to get into this crazy whitewater stuff. I just going to paddle and I'm going to be able to sit. Can I use curse words? In this? Yeah. I'm going to sit on my ass and paddle. And at least I can get some exercise and maybe build up as far as that's concerned. So I hit my little, little local lake. And I do this for a few weeks, and then I kind of get bored of it a little bit. So I ask around, like, is there any gentle rivers that, you know, would offer some cool scenery just, you know, for a change of pace? No white water. <laughs> do it. And it was the luckiest day of my life because I went to this river, um, the Lower Green, actually, that uh, one of my buddies suggested that I do. And I had no – I just didn't pay attention that rain <laughs> allowed river levels to come up. I mean, I'd seen floods, like big rains, but like regular rains bringing river levels up. I had no thought process of this. So I go to this river. It rained fairly hard Friday night. I go to the river Saturday morning, and it's cooking. But again, all I'd been told is a nice, gentle river, and I didn't think it would be any problem. So I put on this river, and wow, it was like this adrenaline rush from hell. And... um <laughs> And I got off that river and it was like my senses had just been woken up and I was like, I've got to do this and I've got a whitewater kayak. So I immediately buy a whitewater kayak and I start whitewater kayaking, which, you know, gave me this real passionate thing to do. Um, it still took me probably 10 years of transition to really get my life where it needed to be. But kayaking started that, hmm. and that was an incredibly lucky day because it ha if it hadn't rained, I wouldn't have taken that. So fast forward a couple other couple years later, I'm I'm getting into I become a fairly good kayaker doing class four stuff anyway, and my my daughter is born, and I when you kayak, you know a lot of people that die every year, unfortunately, and so. Um, I wanted to be a good father. I also didn't want her to be an orphan. So that's when I started cycling. And it was really, honestly, it was just a trailer on the back of an old mountain bike or a basic mountain bike that I, I um, rode around for some fitness and to take my kids through the woods and stuff like that and my second kid. And then that was what got me started thinking about the ideas for improving the hub, which then allowed me to meet these really good cyclists and then start riding with them in town because I was creating this product. And that series of events was the biggest life changer I could possibly imagine. And that's what taught me to really mix this really intense passion to get that really intense passion and meld it into your business. So that was the, those two events were predominantly the one kayaking event was probably the biggie. Wow. The second thing that was a real key change in my life. And that was just kind of unique to the person I was. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people experience this, but having an overactive brain, too much energy, and then a machine shop that I could create any idea was just a too powerful 
it was too much power for somebody that didn't have enough sense. And to, and I felt for some reason, some delusion of being in superhuman in terms of businesses, I thought I could run five, six businesses. And that is a full foolish thing to think. And I woke up finally and realized I needed to focus. And um, even though I did a lot of things, you know, proud of all the things I've done, um, you still have to focus. Mm -hmm. And so making that realization, which then created probably one of the most heartbreaking or probably two, two of the most heartbreaking periods of my, or two two years that were the most heartbreaking of my life were shutting down these other businesses because I also poured my heart and soul into all these businesses. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was worse than a divorce. You yeah. know, it was, uh, uh, giving up on so you know, what you'd worked so hard to do, um, was hard, but it also made, you know, industry nine thrive. So, and so, uh, in that transition period, I'm wondering, um, we walk around the space and there are people and there's people and there's people working on all sorts of stuff. Uh, there's, there's, I'm trying not to make assumptions, but let's just say as you played with all of these or started all of these business ideas, uh, and began executing them, were the employees, could they flow across the projects? Like the, do the CNC machines work against all of them? And so, uh, were people being employed by six different businesses at the time, or were they all kind of working through Turnamics? And then um, where are you at today on employees? Because the number seems it seems really high when we walk around. Yeah, I mean, we're about 90 now. Um, each company had its own employees, but the machine shop always had the, the biggest amount of employees. And so um, there was, generally speaking, there was at least one of those employees that would help or would be key to transition into those new businesses. So there was, there was that, but they would um, maybe initially in some of the prototypes because they were machinist, you know, we would actually make the parts mm-hmm. in the machine shop for the, for the uh, development. And then a lot of those products we would install in the machine shop, like the robots, you know, we put the first robot on our machines here and, and and um, you know gain the experience for that automation work, and then that employee while you were developing it in and out, they would work in the machine shop. But then as soon as the business kind of got rolling, that that person would trans transition to the new place. That's crazy. And then you'd just hire new people when you needed to, or certain skill sets when you needed to. Mm-hmm. So it it maybe it was maybe the best way to describe the machine shop was it was an incubator. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it's a, I think that's, a, that's how my mind was seeing it. That's a great word for it. 90 employees sounds absolutely bananas to me. Um, I'm, well, I, I imagine you've always had employees. Having, or, or your mother was the first employee in, the, in your dad's business. Has ni- have you been around this 90 number for a while? Does it feel normal? Is this like a high-growth time for you? Um, how, how many employees do you see in you know, 2020, when we're, we're going to start transitioning towards the end of the conversation. But like, I have to imagine at 90 employees, you're one of the larger employers around Asheville. That's not a hotel or the hospital. Is that sound? I mean, I have no idea. I, I just, this seems so big. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know for sure. Um, 
dwarfed by the hospital. Yeah. There's a couple other manufacturing facilities that have quite a few people. Okay. Um, but, I mean, still not that many. I mean, I imagine we're kind of up there. But there's a lot of businesses with a lot more than 90 employees. But, uh, but there's still not many. So. Yeah. And what, what, I mean, I've heard that there's, a, like, inflection point at around 50 where, like, somehow or another, by law, you need HR uh, or you need a finance department. Um, I'm just wondering, like, running a business with 10 people versus 100 uh, what kind of differences happen? You have managers that actually manage teams. You have middle managers. I don't know. Um, but what's it What's it like with a team of 90 to 100? Well, again, I could probably write a book on all that. Um, you do see it at different points. Now, um, my main experience, you know, you grow up in something, you become comfortable with mm-hmm. it. I think when I was in, you know, my dad's business started with one employee. And then when I was in college, I think we were about 40, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And then when I got right out of college because of the really rapid growth with rock shocks, we had a year where we basically doubled in size, you know, and that was, you know, buying a lot of machinery, half a million, million dollars worth of new equipment. And then, you know, I think that first year and it was hell, you know, but you know, had to like go from 40 to 80 people. Um, right now we have 90, but it's about 45, in the machine shop and about 45 up at industry nine. Mm-hmm. And I would say that I have a personal relationship with all 90, um, some very tight personal relationships, some, you know, a little bit more surface. I mean, like I certainly know everybody's name and I certainly, you know, know a little bit about their life at mm-hmm. very least when you go, when you get much over 90, and I have probably at one point, I probably employed about 110 with the various companies running. And uh, you start losing some of that personal connection. Uh, I love 90 employees. Um, it's got its fair share of difficulty. And when I had like only 10 at Industry 9, there was something nice about that too. But like, I'm really used to that number. So like, I really like that number. And I and I know that as, as we grow and Honestly, when you have the ability to grow, you better grow. Or again, somebody's going to take your place. Hmm. So I know that I will have a transition. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm at 150 one day soon. And um, yeah, that's going to be a whole new set of realities that I, um, I'm probably not aware of exactly all the nuances. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting in the microscopic details of it all, but it is nice to to have a personal relationship with the people that you work with, and uh, you know have that community. And you probably you know will probably you know there'll be a group of people that I mean I'm sure when you're at 500 you just can't know everybody's name. You just yeah, there's something about a tribe size. They said at around 150. Uh, the the network effect kind of changes. Yeah, but I've seen in my book, I'd say you know the dynamic with you know uh, ten changes quite a bit, maybe thirty changes again, and then ninety hundred is probably another one, and then you know I'm going to get to to see the other ones. You can read a little bit about yeah, it. Yeah. You can you can learn a little bit about it, but it's uh, until you actually experience it. It's going to be a little bit of a surprise. So. Right. Can't any, imagine. Do you have any advice for managing people? 
you know, you can manage people in a lot of different ways. You can be a complete asshole and drive them like, uh, you know, like their numbers and that they, and a lot of corporations do that, you know, mm-hmm. they're, uh, a procedure and a number and you can replace them in and out. And, you know, who knows, there's a lot of major corporations that that works really well. And, um, but for what we, you know, for my my express goal of this company is to make our lives better, you know, not necessarily to maximize profitability, but let's rest assured if you're not healthily profitable, you're going to fail. And that doesn't do anybody any favors. So, mm-hmm. you know, money is a big piece of it. Profitability is a big piece of it. But, uh, uh, I always like one of my, uh, uh, favorite things that I said to somebody or caused me to think momentarily and, and say this was uh, somebody once asked me if I had an employee handbook and I was like, yes, but I view it as irrelevant because everybody, you know, it's, it's cold and impersonal to even call it a handbook. If you have a friend, you don't say, Oh, here's my handbook of how I interact with friend a, you know, no, he's your friend, you know who he or she is. And, um, so like everybody has their nuances, everybody has their fears, their positives, their strengths, their weaknesses, understanding that and, um, and, and, and working that interpersonal symphony to, you know, create beautiful music, let's say, (laughs) um, you know, it's a little flowery, but I mean, it's kind of true, you know, is, is kind of how I look at it. Heard. So. Uh, so then we're at the, the end here and, and there's a couple questions that we like to ask, uh, everyone, a question for you is if we had a magic wand or if our audience had a magic wand, what might you ask for? Uh, and it can be anything. Like a genie in the bottle exactly. wit, grant me a wish. Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely nothing. I can't believe my life is as good as it is. Oh man. Um, would have never dreamed I could have been able to say that, but today I can probably say that. Cool. We never had anyone say that before. No, I, <laughs> and, I, and I, I love that uh, for a lot for so many reasons. So here, here. Yeah. So I'd love to know. I mean, you've been here a long time, all your life, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of things do you like doing in Asheville, from restaurants to that, yeah, that's, I guess trails. not not bike riding, but maybe bike riding. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, one of the one of the things that makes my life really good is um uh that uh I finally found the the uh perfect woman for me, so we do a lot of fun things if you would look at it from you know from a biking perspective, we bought this house that has got an excellent opportunity to commute some trails and back roads to be able to commute to downtown. And, you know, so oftentimes we'll ride our bike downtown, get dinner, maybe hit a couple bars, see some music, take a little bypass up a mountain and, you know, see, you know, the stars or the moon or something like that and head back home. And that's probably one of the favorite things we do. And then um, uh, get out in the weekend and uh, we do a decent amount of paddling um, and stuff like that as well. But then I've got a, gr- a gr- big old group of friends that do some really amazing things. You, you guys ought to join us this summer, but we put on these river we call them river rave parties um i i have like these three giant sups and a lot of the 
a lot of the employees are real into it. And we built a dance floor and a sound system when my buddy built the sound system. Justin Mitchell built this amazing waterproof sound system, and he's a DJ himself. Oh, wow. And, um, I mean, we put together these 70-person flotillas where we're blasting music and dancing going down the river. So that's a ton of fun. Um, I'll put a tow a trailer and put a speaker on the back of it and get a big group of people, and we will just – I call it bike party through town, you know, and we'll just hit bars and ride around blasting music, go up mountains and just have a blast as far as that's concerned. So, you know, it's a, it's a, um, a pretty rich life as far yeah. as that's concerned. So those are some of the favorite things that I do. So if you see a loud group of <laughs> cyclists in town, <laughs> look out for Clint. Yeah. And chances are, uh, I'll, I'll be, uh, in that group probably towing the trailer. <laughs> That's so fun. Wow. Okay. Uh, we will look forward to those invites. We'll, we'll join, we'll rent bikes or at least on the paddle boards. Well, I got one you can borrow. <laughs> Perfect. Um, when here's a, here's a question. When you think of Ash, so I'm going to give you two words, word association. What comes to mind? Asheville and the word community. What comes to mind when I hear those two yeah. words? I mean, for me personally, yeah. uh, like every town, every town has uh, uh, little tight-knit groups of people that are defined by something that they do. Mine is certainly mostly the cycling community and it's a tight knit community in town. A lot of us know each other. A lot of us ride together and stuff like that. So, um, when I think of that, I think of my bike friends, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I go much deeper than that. Cool. Yeah. So. And, um, and then just outside in, uh, mountain biking and road biking, are, are they different communities? Are they like rival bike gangs or are they, do they kind of do both? Do most people do both? A lot of people do both. A lot of people are, you know, stringent one way or the other. I mean, there's a small group of people that, uh, you know, mountain bikers might be like, oh my gosh, you know, let me pull out my heart rate monitor and go on a road ride, you know, and they make a little fun of that. And then, uh, you know, a road, a road cyclist might say, oh, let me go out in the woods and smoke a joint and, and, you know, pedal around at two miles per hour, you know, making fun of that a yeah. little bit, but all in all, everybody is, uh, that's kind of the joke. I would say for the most part, there's a lot of people that, uh, yeah. do both. Uh -huh. And though there, there's definitely communities of people that, that specialize in different avenues, even the type of mountain bike riding that you do, I would say overall, everybody is, you know knows each other mm -hmm. a lot of people know each other and and you know like and respect each other yeah it seems that way there's a you made me think of a uh one of my favorite youtube channels which is called casually explained and he does a casually explained like uh bike someone who knows how to ride a bike someone who is a commuter like a commutes to work on a bike and then someone who's a road biker and how they're different and the nuances between the differences yeah. uh so we will share that a with you and then b in the show notes um sarah any other questions because we're about at time and we want to respect your time uh no just if our audience would like to find more about you or industry nine on the internet where can they find you well i mean our website's industry com spelled out so you know that's the best way or you know Check us out on Instagram, you know, Instagram and YouTube, Facebook, you know, all mm -hmm. YouTube. We got videos, and you know, you can definitely learn. But uh, also, we do tours 
on, uh, I think it's Monday and Friday. I forgot exactly the times, but we always invite people to come by and take a tour. And so, you know, I, I love, I oftentimes give them myself and, uh, I love showing everybody the processes. And like I said, we're wide open door. We don't try to you know, hide our trade secrets, you know, yeah. we, we share. It's like, it's like good luck when you see this face. That would be my, my, my thought is that you're just saying good luck trying to pull this off. This is the scale in this place is absolutely amazing. We thank you for the hospitality, showing us around uh, and taking the time to talk with us and share some of your story. So yeah. uh, thank you for your time. Of course. And that was episode 46 with Clint Spiegel. I, uh, oh my goodness, I, I feel like that was a, a MBA course in uh, business operation, in, in leadership theory, in, in all sorts of um, very practical business advice. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot to gain from this episode. Um, the one thing that I wish that I could steal from Clint is his energy levels. Oh. <laughs> incredible, incredible, In- incredible. Man. I mean, it, yeah. it, it it was not possible to know that he was up uh, one thirty the night before uh, riding mountain bikes and uh, and you know got home at three o'clock. He was uh, full steam, and I love how he said, "I just I wake up and I go hard." I think that's <laughs> my new motto. I yeah. think that maybe we make T-shirts that say, "We just w- like making it a Nashville. We wake up and go hard." And <laughs> and so, if you were inspired like I was by this episode and are interested in uh, getting starting uh, started mountain biking, or you already mountain bike and you have like questions or more things to do, uh, there's a little bit of a bonus question at the mm-hmm. end of this. Uh, Bonus uh, soundbite sound yeah. at the mm-hmm. at the end and end of this episode where we ask Clint, um, how would you get started? Yeah, great. And, and also, if you want to learn more about anything we mentioned in the episode, you want to get um, read about Clint, because uh, I know some people are, you know, visual learners mm-hmm. more than audio learners. We have show notes on making it in forward slash zero four six. So you can uh, connect with Clint there and learn more about his business as well. And if you liked this episode, we will ask you, please, and thank you to uh, write a review or leave a five-star kind of uh, review in making it for making it in Asheville on Apple Podcasts. That is the place to do it. It makes a world of difference. We're finally, finally, it's almost been a year, but we're finally starting to hear that this podcast is showing up when people search for podcasts, uh, and that is a result of the you know star reviews mm-hmm. and the and the written reviews. That happen on Apple Podcasts. So thank you in advance for taking the moment to uh, to do that for Clint and for all of our guests. And if you want to stay connected with us, learn about new episodes, upcoming events, all the latest news from Making It in Asheville, we invite you to subscribe to our newsletter as well. So you can do that at makingitinashville.com forward slash subscribe. Uh, we list all the ways there that you can stay connected to us and hear about upcoming news and events. And uh, events that you would hear about, for example, are uh, our monthly Monday Maker Mixers. Our next one, the the one that will conclude March and really this season of episodes, uh, is about to get announced to our email list. Uh, and so if you are interested in uh, participating in one of our little community events, uh, the best place to be first in line to hear about it is on that email list, which is found at makingitinashville.com forward slash subscribe.
And just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you by our very own marketing agency called Making It Creative. Uh, We help small businesses in Asheville with their marketing, their messaging, communicating to their customers in more meaningful ways, all sorts of different marketing activities. And it's different for every client. And and to be clear, uh, that's probably why we kind of hedge on what it actually shows up as, because the biggest part of what we attempt to do is understand what the largest levers are going to be for a prospective client and attempt to like pull on those levers to, to make a meaningful difference uh, in their business. Uh, and so if you're interested in reading a little bit more about that or uh, asking more about that, the place to go is makingitcreative.com. Fantastic. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, you can nominate them makingitinashville.com forward slash podcast. Um, you can also come to our Monday Maker Mixer events, say hello, uh, get to know us. We'd love to meet you and hear what you're up to. Episode 46. So uh, here's my thing, right? So we've talked to some some big businesses, some big brands, uh, and, and been in some big spaces. I can't get over 70,000 square feet. I can't get over uh, 90 total employees. Like we're just starting to think about contracting work um, and managing that. And the idea of bringing on like a full-time human is crazy. Uh, This episode, I will come back to a lot. I just, I can't, uh, it's the scale of what's going on in industry nine is uh, if if only as a as a thought activity, something that I, I want to spend more time with to to kind of normalize it on the thought that maybe one day we'll have two in place. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, and and his sort of advice too on managing people was, I thought, super wise. Yeah. So you know, forty seven, forty six episodes in, forty seven's coming up, and uh, it's. There's still so many new things to hear and to learn, and I am excited for uh, what lies ahead. Season four is looking to be quite fun. Season three will end with uh, a lot of excitement, I think, and I'm excited for it. So without further ado, that was the end of episode 46. Sarah, we did it. Thank Cool. So, um, to, uh, what is a, like 101, if you have, uh, friends, cousins in town, they aren't bike riders yet. What's like the, what is step one? Is it go rent a bike? Is it what, what mountain, what trail, how would someone get started riding bikes in Asheville? Well, if you know me, you bought just probably buy a, borrow a bike from me. Um, some of the bike shops rent bikes or they'll even de- demo some that they could potentially sell. And, uh, yeah, go out to Bent Creek, do a few loops, ideally, you know, get with somebody that knows some trails so they can show you around and slowly but surely you get good. Cool. How, um, when I think about bike riding in Bent Creek, it, uh, we walked Bent Creek once and we only saw one person on a bike. I have a feeling we weren't in the Bent Creek that everyone talks about when, cause that's come up as like the bike placing bike place to go. Um, what, what all is going on in Bent Creek? Cause that's what we hear when we hear 
uh, mountain biking and trails. Well, I mean, I'll personally rarely go to Bent Creek because yeah. it's crowded. And so I am surprised that you um, didn't see anybody. But I suppose there's there's some hiking-only trails in Bent Creek. Most of them are biking trails. So around here, you'll you'll see trails designated between horses, bikes, and hiking. So everything you can hike. Um, maybe 25% of the trails um, you can bike. But Bent Creek is heavily uh, bike legal. So most of the trails in Bent Creek are bike legal, but also Bent Creek has some of the easier terrain and, and some fairly well-marked trails. Um, so almost everybody starts in Bent Creek, but, uh, soon they'll graduate to a little bit more remote and then the trails get rockier and steeper or more beauty or more extreme crossings, you know, stuff that you need more skill to be able to do it. Cool. But Bent Creek's a place to start for sure. 